All right, opening your Bibles this morning to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Numbers, chapter number 11, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers. So I want you to open with me to the book of Numbers, chapter number 11. And uh, boy, it's good to be in God's house this morning. It's rainy outside and it's cold outside, but praise the Lord, we're not having to stoke up any stoves, amen, and uh, we're not having to thaw out the pews this morning. Might have to thaw out the pew sitters this morning, but we're not having to thaw out the pews, but... Uh, you know, we can have a good time in the Lord this morning. I want you to help me for just a moment. Uh, used to, with the young people, I would make them sing Father Abraham when they seemed a little quiet. I'm not going to do that to you, amen, but I want you to help me. Let's, on three, let's everybody say amen, okay? One, two, three, amen. Good, wonderful. Right, let's say glory, okay? One, two, three, glory. All right, let, let's say, uh, hallelujah, okay? One, two, three, hallelujah. One, two, three, Hallelujah. Okay, let's do, uh, give the pastor a raise on three. One, two. All right. Numbers chapter number 11. I'd like to begin reading in the first verse of uh, the book of Numbers chapter number 11. The Bible says, and when the people complain, it displeased the Lord. Let me say, we could stop right there and preach all day, couldn't we? Complaining doesn't do anybody any good. Some people say it's therapeutic, usually for the person complaining, but not for the person having to listen to it. Amen. Uh, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burnt among them. Notice verse 4, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again, and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Boy, doesn't that tell you the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel at this time? They said, we ain't got nothing but this old manna. I think that old manna is pretty good, don't you? I think it's as good today as it's ever been. Amen? It says in verse 7, And the manna was a coriander seed, and the color thereof as the color of delium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills or beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Uh, then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. The anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth the sucking child into the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? When should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of, the, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. The Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and 
I will take of the Spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them. They shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt, therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month until it come out at your nostrils, and it be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? Let's skip down to verse number 30, and I want to pick up there. And Moses got him into the camp, he and the elders of Israel. And there went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quails from the sea, and let them fall by the camp, as it were a day's journey on this side, and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day, and all that night, and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathered the least gathered ten homers, and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. While the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people that lusted. And the people journeyed from Kibroth Hatava unto Hazeroth and abode at Hazeroth. And I know we've read a lot, but let's pray together. Go to the Lord for prayer. Ask Him to speak to our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for the privilege to be in Your house, Father, with Your Word, Your people, Your Spirit, Your presence this morning. We'd ask, Father, that You'd speak to our hearts in a particular way. Lord, we have particular issues in our life, and so we need you to lay your divine finger upon them. Lead, guide, and direct us, convict us, and show us where we can draw closer to you. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, without Calvary and without Christ, I pray this morning they'd come to know your Son. And Father, I pray you'd give me the unction and the power to preach your word, make it clear to the hearts and ears of those that are here. Father, do a work in us that we'll not soon forget. We'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I know we've read a lengthy bit of Scripture here, but we have set before us the account given of the Lord giving quail to the children of Israel. Now, I've heard this preached on several times. I've heard men talk about it, uh, sing about it, and think about it, and preach about it, and all sorts of things. And I find it interesting that the giving of the quail seems to always be presented in a good connotation. I heard an old-time preacher, uh, and in fact, I've got the sermon on my computer, one of the greatest men of God that ever lived. I respect him greatly, but he was preaching, and he was talking about the manna and talking about the water and talking about the quail and how good the quail must have been, what a blessing it was for them to have the quail. But I find, as I read this, this chapter in the book of Numbers, that the quail was in many ways identified with the children of Israel's dissatisfaction and rebellion. God did not have a desire to give them the quail. They had a desire for the quail, and finally God gave them the quail. Now you say, well, preacher, what, what significance does this have to me and to my life? Do you know the Bible is a relevant book? Uh, it's the Word of God. It's alive, just as Christ is alive. He's not dead. He's not in a tomb. He rose again the third day. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says He ever liveth. 
And in the same way, the Word of God is ever alive. And so what does this mean to our life? I want to read three verses to you out of the book of Psalms that I believe will give a little bit of context to it, and they give us the idea that I want to preach on this morning. In the 106th chapter of Psalm, verses 13 through 15, uh, the psalmist is recounting the history of the nation of Israel. And as he comes to this chapter in their history and begins to talk about the quail that was given, listen to what the Lord says. The Bible says they soon forget His works, talking of the Lord's works. They waited not for His counsel, speaking of the Lord's counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Now, I want you to listen carefully to this verse. The Bible says, and He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Let me read that again. And He gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. Can I say to you this morning, not everything you want is what you need. Amen? Not everything you need is what you want. There's some things that we desire in our life that many times are the worst possible thing that we could have. Let me go a step further and say, do you know that God has a desire to give you His best? He set a pattern of doing this. Whenever God created this world, He didn't create a second-hand world. He didn't create a world with sin and with problems and thorns and thistles. Man came along through his sin and tainted this world. He gave his best. Uh, when God chose the nation of Israel, uh, He chose Abraham. Abraham wasn't much. He was just a Syrian, ready to die, ready to perish. Uh, but when He led him into a land, He didn't just lead him into a good land. He led him into the best land. And he gave him all the best that he could desire. When God sought to save this world from their sins, he did not send an angel, friend. He did not send just a servant. He did not just send a prophet. He did not just send a priest. But the Bible teaches that he sent the only begotten Son of God to die for your sins and for mine. He always gives his best. God had a desire to give His best in the life of the nation of Israel. But the Bible teaches that they did not want His best. They rejected God's best and sought after the things that they desired. The Bible says that He sent leanness into their soul. Can I say to you this morning, you don't belong to you anymore if you've been born again. You don't belong to you anymore. And you'll hear people say, well, I'm my own man or I'm my own woman. Not if you're born again, you're not. You belong to the Lord God Almighty. Uh, you ought to desire what He desires for you. You ought to long after what He longs after uh, for you. You're not your own. It's not your decisions to make. But let me go one step further and say this. You still have a free will. You push God far enough, God will give you what you want. And you may find out it's not exactly what you need. God gave them their request, but with it came a leanness. What does that mean, a leanness? Well, when we talk about something being lean, and I'm sure uh, many of you, when you go to the grocery store and let's say you want to buy a steak, I don't know, everybody's a little bit different. Some people want that big old layer of fat on it. Other people want what we call lean, meaning no fat, meaning no taste usually, amen. Uh, lean uh, means to be sparse or to be wanting of something. And the thing that I find interesting about this verse is that when they finally got what they wanted, they found out it just didn't satisfy them. Let's take a few minutes in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. I want to show you a few thoughts very quickly, and I'll try not to keep you long. I want to say a word about this manna 
that the Bible talks about. We find it uh, spoken of in verse number 6 when it says, But our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And it describes it in verse number 7. And the manna was a coriander seed, and the color thereof as the color of delium. And the people went about and gathered it, and ground it in mills, or beat it in a mortar, and baked it in pans, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. Manna has a lot of significance in the Word of God. Uh, the children of Israel, when they were first approached unto manna, they didn't know what it was. And actually, the word manna literally means, what is it? Or whatness. Uh, they literally named it. We don't know what this is. Do you know that the natural man doesn't have a clue about the things of God? Do you know even after you get saved, there might be a lot you do understand, but there's going to be a whole lot more you don't understand. And as you study man in the Word of God, I see about three things that it represents. Let me just give them to you very quickly. First off, the manna in many ways represented the Savior, the Son of God. Listen to what it says in John chapter number 6 and verse 32 and 33. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. But my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is He which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And so this manna that was given of God to the children of Israel, it it pictured the Savior, the Son of God, that would come to this earth and give His life an offering for our sins. You say, what do you do with bread, preacher? You eat it, amen? That's what you do with bread. I had uh, some uh, sweet church members sent me a, a bread basket. It was actually a bread box uh, of, of gift bread, and we've been eating on it all week. Best cream cheese muffin I've ever sunk my teeth into in my natural-born life. If it was a sin to eat it, I'd just have to go ahead and repent. It was that good. Uh, that's what you do with bread. You eat it. It's meant to be consumed. Do you know the Son of God is not meant to just be a specialty cake put under the glass, but we're to partake in Him day by day by day by day? Listen to me. You'll never know the Son of God unless you partake in what He did for you at Calvary first. And uh, so we find that the man is a picture of the Son of God, the Savior. But I would say also, listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 8.3. And He humbled thee, speaking of the nation of Israel, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with man which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. I would say that the manna represents the Savior, but it also represents the Scriptures. That which is given to us of God for our daily nourishment, we'll talk about that here in just a moment, uh, but the, the very same way the Word of God is to be consumed. I tell you what a lot of people do. They take that Bible and they close it uh, on Sunday night, and then it don't get opened again until Sunday morning. That's not what God intended for His Word. If you're going to have a relationship with the Son, you're going to have to have a relationship with the Scriptures. There's no way around it. You're going to have to read the Word of God. If you don't love the Word of God, it's because you don't love the Son of God. If you don't love the Son of God, it's because you don't love the Word of God. The Bible says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, friend, they are synonymous in nature. And so if you love one, you're going to love the other. If you love the other, you're going to love the one. There's no doubt about it. But then as I study the idea of manna, I get another thought. It's a little bit more obscure, but, but I believe we find it to have scriptural basis. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalms chapter 78. Again, the psalmist is recounting the nation of Israel's history. Verse 24 and 25 says, And he rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them of the corn of heaven. Let me say that again. And had given them of the corn of heaven. Man 
did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the fool. Now you say, preacher, what is the significance of that? It tells me that manna is a picture of spiritual nourishment. The Bible calls it the corn of heaven. That which sustains us, that which we live upon. And could I simply say that in some ways, manna represents the spiritual walk that we all employ day by day. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians that the inward man is renewed day by day. He is replenished day by day. As we walk with God, we're partaking in a symbolic sense of the manna that God has given us. And it's that thought that I want to focus on this morning. The Bible tells us that God had given the children of Israel plenty of manna. They were not wanting quail because they didn't have enough to eat. And can I say to you, and I, listen, I was a youth pastor and I grew up around Christian school kids. You talk about straight out of hell, Christian school kids are hard as a coffin nail, friend. And that's just the way they are. And I was one of them. I mean, it's terrible. It's awful the way they are. I, I, you, you'll feel, Friend, you have more liberty preaching in a prison. A maximum, I could go to Folsom and preach easier than I could in a Christian school chapel. And being around Christian school kids, you'd hear them say all the time, you know, well, I just want to get out and sow my wild oats. And I just, you know, I'm not satisfied with it. I want to see what else is out there. Can I say to you that the things of God are satisfying if we'll partake in them? I mean, that's just a lie, that's just a cover-up, that's just an excuse, and that's just a cop-out. Friend, you don't have to get out into the darkness of the world to see how bright the light is here at home. You ought to just stay in God's house and rejoice in the fact that you won't have as many scars as some other people do. Hey, praise the Lord for people that were out in the depths and muck of sin whenever they got saved. Praise the Lord for that. But hey, praise the Lord for the little ones that come to know Christ at a young age and grow up and don't have to bear those scars and those memories and those trials and those tribulations. Uh, we find in this passage uh, that they rejected the man. It wasn't because they weren't satisfied. But the Bible gives us the source of their choice. The Bible uses the term, and I just want to give you these three things very quickly, I promise. I want to say, first off, we see an unholy appetite. The problem was not what they needed. The problem was what they wanted. Can I say to you today that the problem with, with Christianity today or professing Christendom today is the church has developed an appetite for the wrong kind of things. Uh, there's something wrong, friend, when a rock concert will build a church bigger than Holy Ghost worship will. And, you know, it's funny because people will say, well, you know, whatever it takes to get them in. No, because whatever it took to get them in is what it's going to take to keep them. Right? We ain't done nothing. If, if we make the church as bad as the world and get the world in here, we ain't done nothing. We've not done a thing. And so uh, the Bible teaches uh, that they had developed this appetite. Where did it come from? Well, the Bible says in verse number 4 that the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. You say, preacher, what was that mixed multitude? Well, the Bible teaches in Exodus chapter 12 that uh, when the Passover took place and when they left Egypt, that there was a certain group of people that were not Israelites that had come with them out of Egypt. Why they came, we could speculate, but we don't really know. But let me just say there was a group of people with God's people that weren't God's people. They were the source of this problem. I'm not an isolationist. I am a separatist, but I'm not an isolationist. I believe we ought to make friends with sinners that we might introduce them to the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. I don't believe we ought to try to get ourselves in our little bubble and act like we're too good and too righteous. Don't misunderstand me when I say this. But let me say this too with it. Your company and your uh, context will influence your commitment to Jesus Christ. You run with the wrong crowd, you're going to be the wrong crowd. 
I heard it said one time, and it's stuck with me ever since. You know, you'll hear people say all the time, uh, well, you know, my kid's a good kid. They're just running with the wrong crowd. You ever wonder if the other parent's thinking that too? Friend, if they're running with the wrong crowd, they are the wrong crowd. They may be saved. They may be your little baby or your little grandbaby. But if they're out in the world, they're out in the world. There's no question about it. This mixed multitude got amongst them and it began to influence them. And the Bible says the source was that they fell a lusting. A lusting. In fact, we'll find later on the name of this place, Kibroth Hatava, denotes the graves of those that went a lusting. Let me tell you where it came from. You know where dissatisfaction with Jesus Christ comes from? It comes from sin. I know that seems basic, and it is basic, but we struggle with it. If we're dissatisfied with the things of God, it's not because they're not enough. It's because we've developed an appetite through our sin and our sin nature. Do you know that within you, you have the natural man? And if you've been born again, you have the spiritual man. You have a choice which one you're going to nurture and nourish in your life. And there's a lot of Christians that aren't satisfied with the Word of God and the things of God because they have nurtured their sin nature. The more you sin, the stronger it seems to get. Amen. You ever notice how after you do something once, it's a lot easier to do it the next time? And the next time, and the next time, and the next time. Uh, it's amazing. There's, there's people today, there's people today in church that we would never thought would have been in church. There's people today out of church that we never would have thought been out of church. Isn't that right? And being out of church, that, that seems to be one of the easier ones. You get out of church once, and it's easier the next time, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time. It's a progressive thing. It's a slippery slope that you get on. The Bible teaches that the source was this lusting. The book of James, uh, chapter number 1, tells us concerning lust, uh, that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And lust, uh, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You can do what feels good, but you'll pay the price. We see the source of this appetite, but we see the substance of it. Brother Ralph, we see the substance. What was it that they wanted? This is interesting to me. The Bible says in verse number 4, you know what the first thing they said was? Who shall give us... Hey, this ought to be an indicator. Who shall give us flesh to eat? You say, preacher, are you saying you're a vegetarian? <laughs> Not by a long shot, friend. I, you, you, I, don't bring your pets around me if I'm hungry enough. No, it's not that there was anything necessarily wrong with eating quail. There's nothing wrong with that. But they wanted that which was sensual and that which was savory. Let me say that the beginning of an unholy appetite is when we desire fleshly things. Uh, you'll see it all the time on the television, on the computer. Everywhere you turn anymore, you see flesh being peddled over and over and over again. Can't sell nothing anymore. They can't, they can't sell uh, Drano without being vulgar. They can't sell a hamburger without being vulgar. The appetite of this world is drawn to that which is fleshly. Friend, the devil is still the prince of this world. He's still the god of this world and the prince, the power of the air. He's still, this is still his dominion for now until God unseats him. And so when you look at the world and you see their desire for the things of the flesh, uh, the things that are sensual, and I'm not just talking about the things that are sexual, but I'm talking about anything that appeals to the natural desires of human beings, there's something wrong with it. Now, this is what's scary to me. The church is going in that direction, has been for a lot of years. 
You can go, friend, I mean, you can go anywhere in Knoxville in the heat of summertime. You can see more skin than you would have had to pay a nickel to see in the 20s. Isn't that true? Uh, and, and it's sad because half of them have church stickers on their cars. There's something wrong that you say, preacher, you're judgmental. Well, the spiritual man judgeth all things. It don't take a lot of discernment to understand that being naked is not a biblical thing. Uh, the, the second that mankind sinned and they were aware of their nakedness, you know the first thing they did? They sought to cover it up. There's something to be said for that, isn't there? When the maniac of Gadara in Mark chapter number 5, uh, one of the symptoms of his insanity and his demon possession was the fact that he was naked. When he got saved, the Bible says you saw him clothed and seated and in his right mind. The natural man desires after those things which are fleshly. But let me say, too, that they said, uh, who shall give us flesh to eat? Uh, we remember the things which we did eat in Egypt. The flesh desires uh, fleshly things, but it desires former things. Uh, there's uh, things, whenever you got born again, if you really got born again, there's things lost their luster. Do you remember when that happened? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Do you remember what it was like when you got born again to, to see through new eyes for the first time? I mean, things that you never even batted an eye at before, all of a sudden you saw that they were repulsive to the heart and mind of God. And things that before you had no... Hey, you remember the first time you heard someone cuss after you got born again? You remember that? You remember the first time you'd been around it for uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years and never batted an eye. They'd take the Lord's name in vain. They'd use vulgar language. It never even crossed your mind. But now all of a sudden you've been born again. Your life has been changed. You're indwelt by the Spirit of God. You hear someone spout off with an oath and you say, why'd they have to use that language? But you know, a funny thing happens as Christians uh, continue to live in the world they begin to become desensitized to it. And it's not long before they start seeking the former thing. You know how the flesh is? It's funny. They remembered the onions and the garlics and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the fish from Egypt. You know what they didn't remember? They didn't remember the chains. They didn't remember the whips. They didn't remember the brick making. They didn't remember the oppression. That's how the flesh is. Flesh won't remind you of your loneliness and your darkness and your despair the flesh won't remind you of that hopeless feeling that you had uh, before you got saved, but they'll remind you of the quote-unquote good time you used to have. Uh, listen, if it was so good, what would you get born again for in the first place? I mean, I know that. I, mean, I don't mean that to seem rude, but, but truthfully, when you got saved, it's because you was looking for something. Because it didn't provide what you needed. They desired the former things. Let me give you a final thing. They said, which we did eat freely. They desired free things. Flesh always wants to take the easiest path possible. It's easy to do the wrong thing. Get around a little kid and you'll find it's easy to do the wrong thing. You ain't got to teach them, uh, you know, how to say no. You ain't got to teach them to touch the stove. You got to teach them not to. It's easy to do the wrong thing. There's a lot of Christians giving up in the battle because they're weary and they think it's all about them and they think it's not worth it anymore. Let me say the Christian walk is a hard thing. Whoever told you it was easy, they, they lied to you. Whoever told you it was all going to be new cars and new houses and new suits and, and, and anointed handkerchiefs and everything, they lied to you, friend. Second, you got born again, the devil painted a, a bullseye on your back. You became an enemy of the dark one. And now you've got a battle to fight. The flesh, he don't want to fight that battle. He wants to take the easy road.
He wants to take the easy pathway. Listen, the flesh doesn't like taking a stand for Jesus Christ. The flesh would rather just keep quiet about it. We see the substance, but I want you to notice we see the scorn of their appetite. You know what they said? This this amazes me. But you know, I I, I believe it's I believe this is so in the hearts and lives of believers. You know what they said? Now is our soul dried away, and there is nothing but this manna before our eyes. The Bible says in verse number ten that that when the manna fell and it would fall every day. That when the manna fell, Moses, when he left his tent door, he could hear. And the children of Israel were weeping and crying in their tent doors. Because they got manna again. Would you ever think someone could hate the corn of heaven, angels' food, so much? Do you know? This is the problem today. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say here. This is why we got a lot of dissatisfied people. They got too much of the world to be satisfied with Christ, and they got too much of Christ to be satisfied with the world. And so they're just dissatisfied. It it amazes me that Christians could gain such a contempt for the things of God. But do you know what happens? I've seen people get get wrong with the Lord. We're talking about people getting right with the Lord. We don't ever talk about them getting wrong with the Lord. I've, I've seen people get wrong with the Lord and grow to hate the house of God. Grow to hate the Word of God. Grow to hate prayer. To the point where you couldn't even speak to them about it. Who would have ever thought it could get that bad? But do you know when you start fostering and nurturing that carnal man, that's what happens. The Bible says in the book of James uh, that the spirit which dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. You know what that means? That means the natural man is jealous of the spiritual man. He's jealous of the things of God. He's jealous of Jesus Christ. He's jealous of the throne room of your heart. And listen, friend, if you don't kill him, he's going to take it over. He's not going to give up. He's going to keep on, he's going to keep on, he's going to keep on. He will not call a truce, he will not call a ceasefire. You've got a decision to make. We see an unholy appetite, but I would say that secondly, Brother Ralph, we see an unhealthy acquiescence. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, we see God buckle to their desire. Verse number 10, first off, says that the anger of the Lord was greatly kindled. Can I say, first off, we see the Lord burdened with their dissatisfaction. You know, there's a lot of things. I'll be honest. We talk about sin, and we should talk about sin. We ought to preach against sin. We ought to name sin. But I think preachers ought to start doing a lot more naming of inward sins than they have been doing. We don't mind getting up and preaching against drunkenness and alcohol and whiskey. And we don't mind getting up and preaching against adultery. We don't mind getting up and preaching against uh, dressing like the world and doing these things. But let me say to you that there's some inward sins that we've let slide for far too long. And could I say that discontentment with the Savior is one of them. Dissatisfaction with the Son of God. It grieves God after all He's given us. For us to look at Him and say, Lord, You're just not enough. I've got to have some of the world too. That's what we're doing. It says in our text that they rejected the Lord in doing this. You know, that's not what they were intending on doing. You see, they wanted the Lord and the quail too. And that's just how the flesh is. Uh, he wants to come along and say, no, you're not going to lose anything. What did the devil say in the garden? What did he say in the garden? He said, uh, no, uh, you shall not surely die. 
in the day that ye eat thereof, but ye shall become as gods, knowing good and evil. You know what they're saying? God's going to become your equal and your peer. No, Adam, Eve, you're not going to lose God. You're going to be able to have the knowledge and have God too. And that's what the devil always says. That's what the flesh always says. They weren't trying to boot God when they were begging for the quail. But it was just as good as if they had done that. There are some implications about some things that we do. And I think we try to softball and sugarcoat things, don't you? I mean, that's the world we live in today, and we try to do that. Do you know that when you sin, you're telling God that he doesn't know what he is talking about? God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. God has a lot to say about sin. And when we sin, we're implying that God doesn't know what he's talking about, about sin. When we worry, listen carefully, I don't mean to overburden you. If you, if you worry and if you uh, are a fretter sometimes, and I guess we all are, I don't mean to overburden you, but let me put it in a context. When we worry... We're saying, Lord, you don't know what you're doing in my life. Isn't that right? I mean, that's what we're saying. Lord, you don't know what you're doing in my life. I don't trust you. And when we long after the things of the world and seek after the things of the world, we're saying, Lord, you're just not enough. You're just not enough. Calvary wasn't enough. The Spirit of God wasn't enough. The Word of God's not enough. A peace which passes all understanding is not enough. Fellowship with the Son of God and with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, it's not enough. The fellowship of the New Testament church, it's not enough. Uh, well, listen, we, we live in a day of seeker-friendly churches. Friend, I would say that people are seeking for the same thing today that they've been seeking for since the beginning of humanity and the dawn of man's downward spiral into depravity. People still need Calvary. That's what they still need. That's still what they need. It's still enough. It's still good enough. It burdened the Lord. We see the Lord burdened with their dissatisfaction, but we see Him buckle to their desire. Verse number 18, He says, for them to sanctify themselves against tomorrow. And it's almost chilling the way the Lord says it. The Lord says, you shall have flesh to eat. You know what God's saying there? He's saying, You've asked for it, now you're going to get it. That's not a threat, that's just what the Lord did. I, I see that all through the Word of God. We, we like to think that, that we can never do anything that's going to harm us permanently. And I'm thankful that one day when we leave this world, uh, I'm thankful that we're forgiven, I'm thankful that all things are made new, but, but we like to believe that as believers, we can use 1 John 1, 9 as the kitchen sink, and we're never going to have any consequences uh, after we ask forgiveness. Can I say, there's some things that you do in your life that go with you. The Apostle Paul, and everybody believes different about this, but I, I'm done apologizing for what I believe about it. If you believe something different, then, then you can preach that, amen? But if you look at the Apostle Paul's life, there came a period of time where Paul said, I want to go to Jerusalem. He said, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to go to the feast. I, I, I want to preach. I want to reach Israel. He said, brethren, my, my heart's prayer and, and my prayer and my heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. And he made up his mind he was going to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that as he was journeying there, at several different times, as many as seven or eight people warned Paul that it wasn't of the Lord. 
Uh, they came to him and they, they tried to beg him. They said, Paul, don't go. The Spirit of the Lord has forbid you to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul, it's wrong for you to go to Jerusalem. And this famous verse that we, that we all quote and that we all love is really, I believe, a declaration of defiance on Paul's part when he says, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life so dear. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't care what God thinks about it. I'm going to Jerusalem. Paul goes to Jerusalem. And it's there in Jerusalem that he's taken by an angry mob and arrested. It's there. And you can believe what you want about this, but I believe... uh, You know that we make a deliberate decision to get out of the will of God, but after that we start making mistakes. Because we don't have no discernment, because we're not in fellowship with God. You know what Paul did? Uh, there he was, and, and, and he was being tried, and the mob was there, and he cried out. You see, Paul was a Roman citizen. He knew that he had an option here. He said, I appeal to Caesar. When a Roman said that, they were legally bound to give him an opportunity to plead his case before Caesar. That began a journey for Paul that ended in shipwreck. Uh, From that day forth, we have no record of Paul ever establishing another local New Testament church. God put him on the shelf. Paul said, this is what I want. God finally said, all right, you'll get it then. You pray for something long enough, God's liable to give it to you, whether it's what you need or not, because you have a free will. Let's talk about Jonah for a second. Jonah said, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. It's just the way it is. That's where I'm going. God said, all right. You'll go there in a whale's belly. You go if you want. And there's some things in our life that our flesh desires. And if we long for them enough and we pray for them enough and we grab about it enough and we make our mind up, God's just liable to say, all right, you want it, you're going to get it. And you'll have to live with the consequences. We see God buckled at their desire. But listen to this. We see that God burdened them to disgust. Your lie will get more of it than what you're wanting. You know what God did? God said, all right, you'll get quail. But you're not going to eat it for one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days. For a whole month, you're, you're going to eat it. And God said, until it come out of your nostrils, and it's loathsome to you. Loathsome. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. Always. Mark her down. Sin always takes you farther than you're wanting to go. Go. Walk the streets, friend. Go down to Magnolia Avenue. Go down to Gay Street. Walk the streets and talk to broken people and ask them if they ever thought they'd be in that shape. Go and talk to the drunkard and ask him, say, do you ever plan on living on the street? He'll say, no. No, I started out as a social drinker. I started off at parties. Just drink here, drink there. The funny thing about it, you're going to be mastered by someone or something. You don't let Christ master you, something else will. We see an unhealthy acquiescence, but we see an unhappy aftermath. What happened? The Lord gave him the quail. The Lord gave him the quail. Rained it from the heavens. The Bible says insomuch that, that for two miles around the camp it was stacked up three foot high. That's a lot of quail. And they, they began to go and to gather the quail. Now, this is the picture I see. The Bible says that all day and all night, they began to gather this quail. 
The Bible says that he that gathered the least gathered ten homers. That's about the equivalent. Uh, one homer is the equivalent of a wheelbarrow fool. Can you see these Israelites as they go and gather these dead quails and pile them uh, into this wheelbarrow and begin to wheel back two miles back to their house? Can you see the heavy load and the heavy burden? Can you see the sweat beat up on their brow? Can you see their back begin to arch with pain? Can you see them as what they desired has become their master and their burden? We see that they got what they wanted and it became a burden to them. That sin, that thing that you want so bad, that thing that you want to do so bad, you go ahead and do it and you'll find that you won't run it, it'll run you. Sin always takes control. Always. Why do you think there were chains that had to be broken for us at Calvary? It's, the Bible says if the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. That implies that we're born into bondage in this world. What bondage? The bondage of sin. The bondage of unrighteousness. The bondage of the flesh. And friend, you give it an inch and it'll take the whole ruler on you. Take the whole thing. We find that it burdened them. The Bible says as they began to eat. You know the funny thing about it? They never even got to enjoy it, Brother Ralph. The Bible says when it was in their teeth, air it was chewed. That doesn't mean while they were chewing. That means before they could chew it. Before they could ever even taste it. The Bible says the Lord smote them with a great plague. And the Bible says that they buried the people there. Could I say that sin not only burdened them, but it buried them. It destroyed them. Destroyed them. I know we like to think that we all live in bubble wrap, you know. We all like to think we all live in little bubbles. Sin won't affect me. It won't affect my life. I've been around young people too long to believe that. I've seen young people grow up in God-fearing homes where the Bible is presented and showed forth. But because of their own choices, they got out into sin and it destroyed them. Sin is a hateful thing. Sin is a destructive thing. And you mark her down, friend, just as sure as God created the heaven and the earth, just as sure as Christ came to Calvary, just as sure as for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life, just as sure as John 3, 16, lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It always buries. It always buries. We find finally that it branded them. They named that place Kibroth Hatava. See, that's impressive, preacher. Now I had to look it up. <laughs> Kibroth Hatava. It literally means the graves of the lusting ones. You know what they became, Brother Ralph? I think about this all the time. They became an illustration to others. I think about people. That the only way people remember him now is as a preacher's illustration. I think about young people. That the only time that they're ever really remembered anymore, it's I once knew a young person that got on drugs. I once knew a, a young person that began to be pr uh, promiscuous and give away their body. I once knew a young person that began to dabble with alcohol. And they become a spectacle to those that knew them. Sin will defeat and destroy and rebrand you. And you'll become a testament and a testimony 
to what sin can do in a person's life. I don't know why God gives sermons the way He does or what He does. But I know that God does nothing without purpose. And this morning, God may have spoken to your heart. There may be something that you've been fighting with the Lord about. Could I say today would be the day to wave your white flag. Say, Lord, not my will, but thy will. Maybe today you've been fighting with the Lord about salvation. Oh my, what a big gamble. Could I say that you'll always lose? Uh, You've been fighting with the Lord. has been convicting you, showing you your need of Calvary. But you know what the problem is? There's too many things you want to do. You don't want the manna. You want the quail. Well, you go ahead, friend, and it'll bury you. But Christ's offer of salvation from Calvary is full and free and paid. And it's good for one and all that will come to Him. You don't have to die and go to hell. Or maybe today you know of a loved one that you have that's in that very situation. You can see in their life. They're caught at a place like Paul was in the storm of Eurachlodon, Acts chapter 27. Caught in a place where two seas meet. They're in a place of contention. And they're at a place of crisis and decision. This morning will be a fine time to lift their name to the throne room of God and ask God to intervene.